This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. Today's Jazz Beat podcast pays tribute to journalist and jazz historian Nat Hensoff. Nat Hensoff, a restless, uncompromising paragon of independent journalism, died on January 7th in New York at the age of 91. His family was by his side, and Billie Holiday, whom he presented on the 1957 television special The Sound of Jazz, was on the turntable. Hentoff was fond of quoting the late New York Times columnist Tom Wicker's observation about their mutual hero, I.F. Stone. He said he never lost his sense of rage, neither have I. While Nat aimed his journalistic lance primarily at issues related to what the Times obituary identified as free speech, wayward politics, and the Constitution, jazz played a major role in shaping his core values. In a 1997 interview with C-SPAN, he told Brian Lamb that his youth in Boston was marked by two disparate phenomena, violent anti-Semitism and something more fulfilling. I was introduced to jazz, and that's become a basic concern and passion of mine ever since. Hentoff began his 1986 memoir, Boston Boy, with the story of a group of rabbis conducting a ritual excommunication of him at a motel in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, because of a petition he'd signed protesting Israel's 1982 invasion of Lebanon. If he'd been called to the motel to defend himself, he said he would have told them about my life as a heretic, a tradition I keep precisely because I am a Jew, and a tradition I was strengthened in because I came to know certain jazz musicians at so early an age that they, not unwittingly, were my chief rabbis for many years. I would be excommunicated nonetheless, for what could Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus mean to that court of Aziz's? What he meant by so early an age, he wrote in a later memoir, speaking freely, was eleven when jazz became what he called a vocation, the equivalent of a religion. While Hentoff ultimately wore many hats as a journalist, it was through jazz that I first encountered him, and I wasn't alone. Before I was out of high school, many of my friendships were based in a mutual love for the music and an understanding that our identity with something as unconventional as jazz was a signifier of our youthful thrust for individuality. Nat was of our parents' generation, but his odyssey away from the orthodox and conventional made him one of our most trusted guides, just as he was for many others. A few years ago, as I was preparing an introductory talk for the area screening of a documentary about Hentoff, The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, I asked the African-American spouse of one of my in-laws if Hentoff's name rang a bell. Sure, she said, I learned about jazz through all those liner notes, he wrote.
I grew up in Worcester, but the orientation my parents gave us to Boston made Hentop's writings about his youth and wide-ranging experiences there a natural interest of mine. I came to admire his nonconformist politics, his progressive attitudes and insights on race matters, and his admiration for some of my favorite writers, especially the Boston-born jazz critic, style arbiter, and Nixon scold, George Frazier, of whom Hentoff wrote, he came into a room like the first notes of a Lester Young solo, a proclamation of being, a style that could be mistaken for no one else's. But what I valued most was his gift for conveying something of the profound humanity that lay behind the mythical aura of musicians. Hentoff wrote with a keen sense of how important the jazz life was to its creators, and with a knowing appreciation of its significance for those of us for whom the players were priests and priestesses. He wrote extensively on Ellington and Mingus, and became a confidant of both, and he wrote about Lester Young as well. And while my appreciation for prayers began a long time ago, I'm continually grateful to Hentoff for helping me appreciate how the sweetly poetic sound of Lester Young's tenor saxophone playing made me feel him on a more personal and intimate level than any other jazz artist. In Boston Boy, he wrote, I had the presumptuous notion that I wanted to do something for Lester Young, make him feel less alone. I have never seen anyone who was more alone wherever he was, alone and slightly puzzled. But with swinging wit and tenderness, prayers, loose in space, transformed his life every night into what it ought to be. Through his essays and books, his editorship of the Jazz Review, and his participation in the groundbreaking School of Jazz in Lenox, Massachusetts, Hentoff helped establish the intellectual framework that guides the present-day profusion of jazz histories and biographies and critical studies. His career began well before jazz studies became ubiquitous on college campuses, and his early writings are replete with invective over the second-class status the music was accorded in concert halls and in the groves of academe. His tireless advocacy made a difference, and to no one's surprise, when the National Endowment for the Arts established the A.B. Spellman Award for Jazz Advocacy in 2003, Hentoff was its first recipient. Nat's prominence as a journalist began at age 28 with a gig as the editor of Downbeat, the job that occasioned his move from Boston to New York and from which he was dismissed three years later for insisting that the magazine diversify its staff. In 1958, he began writing a weekly column for the Village Voice that focused mostly on free speech, freedom of the press, and education issues as played out in newsrooms, the courts, and the public square. He was also the author or editor of several canonical works of jazz history and criticism, including The Jazz Makers, Hear Me Talkin' To Ya, and The Jazz Life. Nat's tastes and perceptiveness extended beyond jazz. He was one of the earliest critics to take Joan Baez and Bob Dylan seriously, and he interviewed Dylan for Playboy and profiled him for The New Yorker. He also wrote about the country legends Merle Haggard and Bob Wills, and under William Shawn's storied tenure at The New Yorker, he wrote profiles of Jerry Mulligan, Justice William Brennan, and Cardinal John O'Connor. Nat's outspokenness as a pro-life advocate led him to find common cause with the New York Archbishop, but it puzzled and alienated many of his compatriots on the left. For Hentoff, however, principles always came first. 
In his later years, Hentoff wrote for the Wall Street Journal, and for a couple of decades, he had a monthly back-page column in Jazz Times, where he wrote on emerging players, old masters, and topical matters like the absence of women in the ranks of the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. It was in Jazz Times where he plugged an article of mine about Wynton Marsalis in 1998. Nat's compliment came as a complete surprise to me as I read the column, and it induced both a thrill and a humbling sense of challenge. At the time, I still hadn't met him, but we soon connected over the phone and enjoyed a couple of meetings together in New York. He proved to be an excellent source for an article I wrote on Duke Ellington's New England for the Boston Globe magazine in 1999. Duke gave only four complete performances of his celebrated extended work Black, Brown, and Beige in 1943, the night after its Carnegie Hall premiere, the 18-year-old Hentoff attended its performance at Boston Symphony Hall. 21 years later, when the 65-year-old jazz great Ellington was denied a special Pulitzer Prize for Lifetime Achievement, it was Hentoff to whom he famously said, Fate is being kind to me. Fate doesn't want me to be too famous, too young. But he was less pithy and more revealing when he confided to Nat his belief that what it really meant was that jazz was still being treated like a man you don't want your daughter coming home with. Nat's musings often began with an exchange he'd had with Ellington or Miles Davis, Billie Holiday, Pee Wee Russell, or Dizzy Gillespie. In the best sense of the word, he was a name dropper, but only in the service of an idea or insight, never to make someone who wasn't there feel deficient or left out. While Whitney Belliott, his colleague on The Sound of Jazz, had the rare gift for conveying the sound of music in prose, Nat's strength was in describing its effect on him. Of the cantorial-like cry he heard in Ornette Coleman's saxophone playing, he said, It jolted me back to when I was a boy, sitting next to my father in a shul in Boston's Jewish ghetto. In Lester Young's tenor playing, he felt a pulsating ease. Blues pianist Otis Spann impressed him with the sound of a deep river of feeling, sometimes rushing against rocks and sometimes deceptively serene. Nat titled one of his anthologies, Listen to the Stories, and he got great ones because he was an empathetic listener. In the Hentoff documentary, Phil Woods made it plain. When musicians saw Nat enter the room, they didn't think, ah, here comes a critic. They said, here comes a friend of the music. As the Times and other newspaper obits made clear, Hentoff, who was a graduate of Boston Latin and Northeastern, was even better known as a friend of the First Amendment. The Constitution and jazz are my reasons for being, he declared in David Lewis's documentary. The First Amendment is a way of life. He said it was the individual expressiveness of jazz players that fostered his reverence for democracy and everyone's right to speak. His Village Voice column was devoted to that principle for 50 years, and that's what drew Lewis to his subject. 
The filmmaker, a former producer at 60 Minutes, knew nothing of Hentoff's jazz writings. He told the Times, I went to high school in Westchester in the 1970s, reading Hentoff at the time. His voice always stood out in what was such an awful period in public life, Watergate, post-Vietnam, the Church Commission, FBI abuses, malaise. And he was writing about all of it, so I always knew who he was. Among the sources that Lewis interviewed for the film were the writers Stanley Crouch and Amiri Baraka, First Amendment lawyer Floyd Abrams, Justice Brennan, and Nat's wife, Margot Hentoff. There's a vintage clip of him squaring off against William F. Buckley Jr. on a firing line episode devoted to civil rights and black power. Dan Morgenstern is seen pouring through the record library of the Institute of Jazz Studies, where he reads a quote from Hentoff's liner note essay for Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain. Miles plays with an authenticity that is neither strained nor condescending. Crouch praises his work as a producer at Candid Records. Some of those records are as good as any record made at any time, he says, and adds that while critics often feel they'd make the best producers, Nat Hentoff proved that he could. Candid was a subsidiary of Cadence Records. The label was doing well with Julius LaRosa, Andy Williams, and the Everly Brothers when its founder, Archie Blyer, hired Hentoff to launch a jazz label. Nat wrote about the candid venture in Speaking Freely. The fantasy was common to jazz boffs, as we used to be called. Someday, somehow, I would have my own record label and record my favorite musicians. The releases would be pure jazz and therefore would last for generations. Untold numbers of people all around the world would remember my name gratefully. Nat was speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course, but by 1997, when Speaking Freely was published, Candid had more than stood the test of time. Though it was in operation for less than two years, Candid captured some of the most vital music of the era, ranging from politically charged works by Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, and Charles Mingus, to career milestones by Clark Terry, Booker Irvin, Steve Lacey, Booker Little, and Cecil Taylor, to classic blues by Memphis Slim, Lightnin' Hopkins, and Otis Spann. Candid also documented landmark albums by two Massachusetts natives, Phil Wood's extended work, Rites of Swing, and the 38-year-old pianist Jackie Byard's debut release, Blues for Smoke. Hentoff performed a veritable public service by recording Otis Spann. For the pianist, one of the greatest in blues history, had recorded only two singles by 1960, seven years into his long tenure with Muddy Waters. Nat had heard Spann with Buddy at the 1960 Newport Jazz Festival, and he made up for lost time by recording over 20 titles by the pianist and his collaborators, Robert Jr. Lockwood and St. Louis Jimmy Oden. Lockwood is heard here playing guitar with Spann on the Big Maceo Blues classic, Worried Life Blues. In a music populated by partisans of one style or another, Hentoff's tastes were refreshingly Catholic. 
and in this regard he was a model for listeners who found themselves drawn to jazz that ranged from what Beaver Harris termed ragtime to no time. Nat's opposition to Kant, including the notion that jazz must be innovative to be of value, was especially inspiring to me as a young fan who was drawn to everyone from Basie and Bechet to Byrd and Coltrane. In his Boston youth, where he spun jazz records at WMEX and made the rounds of the Savoy, Storyville, and Hi-Hat nightclubs, he grew as fond of old-school clarinet players Edmund Hall and Pee Wee Russell as he did the modernists. At Candid, he struck a balance between traditionalists and iconoclasts and recruited Pee Wee Russell and Coleman Hawkins to make their first session together since the historic Mound City Blue Blowers date of 1929. Jazz Reunion was the name of the album, and it includes this poignant blues that Pee Wee named for his wife Mary. best known of the candid releases are also the most political. We Insist, Max Roach's Freedom Now Suite, Abby Lincoln's Straight Ahead, and Charles Mingus Presents Charles Mingus. Fifty-five years later, Roach's magnum opus is still the most fully realized work of a political nature in jazz history. Combining the drummer's music and Oscar Brown Jr.'s lyrics in support of the civil rights movement in the U.S. and the emerging anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, where the record was ultimately banned, Freedom Now's sense of her urgency is made all the more insistent by the boldness of Lincoln's singing and the whap of Max's drumming. We insist on Lincoln's album Straight Ahead signaled Abby's transformation from supper club chanteuse to what Hentoff described as the Abby Lincoln she had long wanted to be, a soul-bearing voice of liberation. Drive a man, he made a life, but the mammy ain't his wife. Chopping cotton, don't be slow. Better finish out your road. Keep a moving with that plow. Drive a man, I'll show you how. Get to work and root that stump. Drive a man, I'll make you jump. Better make your hammer ring. Drive a man or start to swing. Ain't but two things on my mind. Drive a man and quit in time.
Mingus Presents Mingus includes original Faubus fables. Mingus's riotous lampoon of Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus, the segregationist who blocked the integration of Little Rock Central High School in 1957. Faubus's resistance prompted President Eisenhower to send in federal troops, though not before Louis Armstrong, in the most controversial statement of his career, called him out for inaction. Mingus had first recorded Fables of Faubus for Columbia in 1959, but only as an instrumental, since Columbia objected to lyrics that decried Nazi fascist supremacists and the chant of 2468, they brainwash and teach you hate. Columbia, as it were, stood in the schoolhouse door, but there was no such resistance coming from Nat Hentoff at Candid. I'd like to um, continue this set with a composition dedicated to the first or second or third All-American heel, Faubus, and it's titled The Fables of Faubus. Nat's last anthology of writings at the Jazz Band Ball, 60 Years on the Jazz Scene, was published in 2010. In his epilogue, My Life Lessons, he says, The candid recording that means the most to me was made in 1961 by 23-year-old Booker Little. I knew he'd be a shaper of the future of jazz because of his vision, and his sound reminded me once again of what Duke Ellington had told me, a musician's sound is his soul. Alas, Booker Little died of uremia only six months after he had recorded the album out front. Nat said he was startled when the trumpeter dedicated his composition, Man of Words, to him. It was his description in sounds, dynamics, and rhythms of the writing process. True to form, Hentoff then jumps from his memory of Booker Little to a concluding paragraph in which the Dixieland cornetist Jimmy McPartland relates a story about Bix Beiderbeck. For Nat Hentoff, Every lick of this music was fresh, valid, interconnected, and loaded with truth, love, and the unexpected. For additional links and photographs of Nat Hentoff, visit the jazz blog at nepr.net. There you'll also find podcasts by NEPR's news staff. Thanks to Katie Wright for production assistance. For Jazz Beat, I'm Tom Reaney. And from the broadcast of The Sound of Jazz, here's Billy Holiday with Ben Webster and Lester Young, Jerry Mulligan and Vic Dickinson, Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge. Lady Day sings fine and mellow. Treats me oh so mean. 
It has turned off and gone. 